Hello. Hello. And welcome to another episode of Tacos and Tequila. I'm Peyton. I'm Sydney. And we have another doozy for you all. Another day, another doozy. Yeah, I felt like it was fitting to go back with a doozy. It's an interesting case for sure. And actually one I had never heard of until recently. I don't think I've ever heard of this one. It's um, it's a lot. I texted me last night at like 1130, 12 o'clock at night and was like, I messed up. I have <laughs> fallen down this rabbit hole and I can't stop reading more articles on it. There's definitely so, a lot, a lot out there on this one too. So it was good compared to some of the last ones. I feel like that we had like limited things we could look into. There was a lot of different angles. I feel like on this one, which was pretty cool. I agree, and I am going to. I just told Sid, but I'm going to try something a little different and keep things a bit of a mystery for a minute for us, and um, hopefully. You guys enjoy the ride we're going to take you on. Yeah, anything else before I uh, dive right into it? I don't think so. All right. In the late 80s, the quiet Buttonwood neighborhood of Warwick, Rhode Island, was shaken to its core when in the span of two years, four horrific murders took place. The perpetrator was being called the Warwick Slasher or the Slasher of Warwick, but the true criminal, once caught, would shock not only the neighborhood, but the whole state and even the country. On a hot summer night, July 27th, 1987, as mentioned in the Buttonwood neighborhood, 27-year-old Rebecca Spencer was murdered in her home. Rebecca was a single mother with two children, a son, Stephen Jr., who was eight, and a daughter, Danielle, who was four. Her brother also lived in the home, but that night of the attack, she was home alone. Just a couple years or so before, Rebecca and her husband had split up, but they remained close. This particular evening, her children were with her ex-husband that night. It was now moving time for Rebecca, her brother Carl, and her two children, and most of the furniture had been removed from her home, and there were boxes scattered everywhere. That evening, Rebecca, known as Becky, had two friends over helping her pack and was out running errands while her brother Carl worked a night shift. Eventually, they would end up back at her home, and Becky's friends left around midnight, leaving her to change and fall asleep in front of the TV on the floor in the living room with a blanket. That evening, under the cover of night, someone broke into her home and attacked her while she slept on the floor in that exact spot. She was stabbed a total of 58 times, her autopsy would later determine. Her killer was a mystery. There were no clear leads, and there was really no evidence found at the scene. There were no suspicious people sighted lurking around, and there were really no enemies of Becky's to look into. Essentially, Rebecca Spencer's murder would go cold. However, two years later, after Rebecca's murder, another gruesome attack would strike the Buttonwood neighborhood. In the Heaton residence, in the beginning of September of 1989, an intruder broke in through a window and stood in the dead of night in the kitchen before deciding whether or not to kill the residents inside. They had broken in through a window in the kitchen, and that night, 39-year-old Joan Heaton was murdered in her home along with her two daughters, 10-year-old Jennifer and 8-year-old Melissa. 
These two crime scenes were eerily similar. The murder of Becky Spencer and in the Heaton residence were considered especially brutal and over the top. Joan Heaton had 57 stab wounds and was found in the hallway of her home under blood-soaked sheets. It was shown in her autopsy that she was also strangled and beaten. Her eldest daughter, Jennifer, was lying nearby Joan and had 62 stab wounds herself. And finally, the youngest daughter, Melissa, was stabbed 30 times and had a crushed skull. She was found in the kitchen of the home. When attacking one of the young children, the perpetrator accidentally appeared stabbed themselves, leaving traces of their presence there and blood spatter on the crime scene. All three victims were brutally stabbed to death and even had broken off bits of knives stuck in their bones. One report said there was an entire blade of a knife stuck in Melissa's neck, and that was the youngest daughter. For a couple of weeks after the Heaton murders, neighbors in the area bolted their doors and abided by curfews, afraid that they were going to be the next victims of the Warwick slasher. The FBI was brought in to assist on a profile since both crime scenes were so similar and it was the same neighborhood. It was really kind of a mystery. Like, investigators were trying to figure everything out. They couldn't couldn't really tell, but there were some things that the FBI profile hit on. One, because these attacks happened in the same neighborhood, they assumed either the perpetrator lived in that neighborhood or they were from that neighborhood. They also assumed that... They probably knew the victims themselves. Uh, These two crimes really did happen very close to each other. Like, it's not just, oh, the neighborhood is, like, you know, a few blocks away or, like, you know, streets away or anything like that. I mean, they were within a block of each other two years apart. By some luck, while patrolling and interviewing the neighbors, An unsuspected person would be pointedly suspicious to these investigators. Although they did fit the profile of the FBI to some extent, it was very different than who the investigators were initially looking for. The suspect had a giant gash on their hand, specifically near their finger, which was definitely a red flag since they knew the perpetrator had cut themselves at the heat and crime scene. Police began investigating into the suspect's background and noticed some holes in their story that they had originally offered the police. They ended up agreeing to take a polygraph, which showed deception, and eventually their home was searched, which led to their arrest. When 15-year-old Craig Price was finally brought in, he immediately confessed to the murders. Not only the ones that took place at the Heaton residence, but also to that of Rebecca Spencer. Price would have been only 13 at the time of Rebecca's death. When brought in, he was described as having the face of a child and the body of a man. I mean, I'm not going to lie, and I'm sure Sid will post a picture of him being arrested. I mean, he looks like a big kid. He was 5 foot 10 inches and 235 pounds in just the ninth grade. His arrest came one month before his 16th birthday. Investigators who heard his confession were chilled to their cores when Price spoke. He was lacking any emotion and he vividly remembered how the knives went into the bodies. It was determined from his confession he was high on marijuana and LSD at the time of the Heaton murders, and he had smoked marijuana prior to the Rebecca Spencer murder. To this day, there's really never a true reason as to why he committed these horrific attacks. But from various investigations and what he has said to journalists, we can piece some of it together. 
Originally, Price told investigators that he killed to cover up robberies, but we now know that to be false. A sock print left at the Heaton residence also matched to Price's size 13 shoe, and at his home, they found the knives used in the murders in the backyard shed. He also, during his confession, told police investigators that once he returned home in the cover of night, he took off his bloody clothes, put them in a garbage bag, and hid them in the attic of his family home for both crimes, and later investigators would find these in the attic. So, already pretty shocking that the person confessing to these crimes is so young. A little more details have since come to light. And this is kind of what we know now for some of the events. Regarding Rebecca Spencer's home, it was two houses down from the Price residence. Craig did know her as Becky and actually remembered playing football in the street with her young son when they would play with the neighborhood kids. He had said he had the urge to kill that night and chose to smoke weed and attack the Spencer residence. But when he went outside after getting high in his room, he saw that the car was gone from the driveway and was very upset he missed the opportunity. After some time, he chose to try to break in anyways to vandalize the home and take out his anger. When creeping around the back of the home, Price noticed a TV was on in the living room and could make out the shape of someone sleeping on the living room floor in front of it. Once inside, he realized it was Becky and decided to find himself a weapon. Just like a side note, I saw he had said originally he picked up like a frying pan and was trying to swing it in the air to see how that would work and he just happened to pick up the 10-inch carving knife instead. He remembers walking over to her and standing above her sleeping body for some time and then finally deciding to gruesomely attack her and, like I said, snuck away in the night back to his home. As for the Heaton murders, during his taped confessions, he described stabbing Joan and her daughters with the knives from their own home, and mentioned how he bit Joan's face while he was stabbing her. He also mentioned that one of the children bit him when he was attacking them, and so he had bit her back. He had said that the youngest one's head was smashed in because the women fought way harder than he had expected. He... When he broke into the home, he had knocked down like a table or something in the kitchen and it had woken the residents. So they were already alerted and he had to kind of subdue them very quickly. And he had smashed Melissa on the head with like a bar stool or something found in the kitchen. During his confession, he mimicked the cries of the young girls, according to investigators, and whined about cutting his hand. Because he was underage, his parents did have to be present during this confession. An investigator said his mother sat there looking horrified the whole time. And while he was going through the events, his father rushed from the room to the bathroom to go vomit, and he never returned back into the room. I can, like, only imagine sitting there with your child and, like, they're confessing to this. That's what I was about to say. Like, I couldn't even, like, to put yourself in that room or, like, somebody's shoes like that. Like, this is your child who you love and, like, you would never think that they would do something so horrible. And, like, I don't know if this family, but, like, some families, like, have thoughts that, like, their child might be, like a little off or something so like if you didn't maybe you had those thoughts and are like is there something I could have done to stop this like they're blaming themselves that's just so horrific yeah I mean and we'll get into I actually end up finding a lot of information on Craig Price's background so we'll get into that here shortly but it is so horrifying because his parents seem like genuinely 
very good people. And this is like a very good case to talk about like nature versus nurture, in my opinion, uh, because I don't I don't think it had anything to do with nurture. They were, by all accounts, a very normal family. Psychologists were brought in to evaluate Price, like obviously they would be with most extremely violent cases, let alone those involving adolescents. It was determined that Craig Price lacked empathy. And for those of you who don't know, nowadays that is a leading symptom in a uh, sociopath diagnosis. He was, however, during the four sessions in the months after the heat and murders, good-mannered and well-behaved. He showed no anger or outbursts during those sessions, and that was, like, highly unusual. But the psychologist did say that there was definitely anger hidden underneath the surface the way he discussed things. Uh, I know Sid and I kind of talked about this too, and I will brush over it because it is, I guess, part of like Craig Price's story and aspect is that he did have a few very poignant interactions with adults or I guess like 19 and up too, even um, adult, young adults where he was facing racism. Uh, in the late 80s in this Rhode Island community, it was like a heavily white population and Price family was African-American. Uh, so they do say that part of this is the reason why for maybe some of his attacks specifically on these white residents near him. Uh, there was one incident where he was playing out in the yard with a bunch of kids in the neighborhood. And a car either going to or from Becky Spencer's home had yelled out the window, threatening to run over kids and, like, saying a lot of racist stuff. Now, there is someone that had an interaction who says that they had an interaction with him very similarly, but it wasn't as Craig Price portrayed it. So that's why I'm just kind of like grazing over it because there is nothing that really corroborates that story. I'm not saying that that's not true, <laughs> just to clarify, it it could be. And I know, unfortunately, especially in the late 80s in that area, I'm sure it was very possible and very true. I just personally don't see that as a justification of the events that happened. However, the laws at the time did not allow Craig Price to be tried as an adult, which basically at the age of 16 meant if he was found guilty, he would only be serving a sentence until the age of 21, and then after that he would be a free man. Part of this would also mean his case record would be sealed since he would be tried as a juvenile. This obviously and rightfully so caused a lot of public uproar, including investigators and uh, journalists who worked and covered the case. A lot of officers who helped investigate and witness the crime scenes, which they have said multiple times they have, will never forget, they dedicated themselves to helping change the laws in place allowing minors to be charged as an adult in extreme acts of violence. Within like six months of Craig, Craig Price's conviction, they were successful. And it was solely due to Craig Price's case that the legislation in Rhode Island passed and the law changed. There was an uproar. <laughs> um, I mean, President Bill Clinton would eventually comment on the Craig Price case, the governor of Rhode Island, multiple attorney generals and investigators and the public were very all outspoken that they did not believe the sentence that Craig Price received was fair and he should be serving more time. But unfortunately, when that law happened and that law changed, 
it wasn't applied retroactively. Meaning, Craig Price, who pled guilty, he would serve his sentence in what was called a training school in Rhode Island, where he would be serving for the next five years. And that was really all that they expected. Before we get into Craig Price's jail sentence, <laughs> um, I kind of wanted to hop into his background because I kind of teased already to you, said to and everyone else that the whole nature versus nurture thing. I like really threw myself in trying to find as much information as possible about his family. He seemingly came from a good home. He was born Craig Chandler Price on October 11th, 1973 in Cambridge, Massachusetts to parents John and Shirley Price. He had two older siblings, a sister Kimberly and a brother John Jr. Craig grew up in a religious home, that of devout Baptists. His parents had actually met in church back in 1967 in the Boston area and were married by 1968. They were very involved in the church. Craig's mother, Shirley, she had a sister and a grandparent who were ordained ministers and active in the church. They themselves were involved in the choir and various other activities. In 1978, just five years after Craig was born, the family relocated to the Buttonwood neighborhood of Warwick, Rhode Island. They were a middle-class suburban family in a very quiet neighborhood. At the time of the crimes, John Price Sr. was working as a manager at Pepsi-Cola Company in Cranston, not too far from their home. And Shirley Price also worked as a clerical worker at a law firm. I did see this little tidbit, and I thought this was kind of, I guess, like, the whole story is very horrific. But it was kind of cute and funny when talking about, you know, John Price Sr. He was, like, very proud of working for the Pepsi Cola Company. He's, they said, like, they were not allowed to have any non-brand Pepsi products in their home for, like, soft drinks. And he constantly was getting, like, free merch through work. So you could see him constantly, or Craig or John Jr., being in, like, a Pepsi windbreaker or have Pepsi socks or a Pepsi hat on. And I thought that was really funny. Um, I don't know if this, like, ever really applies to you, Sid, but I grew up and my grandpa worked for Chrysler. So, like, mm -hmm. we drive Chryslers. <laughs> so that's kind of what it reminded me of. I do, I do like that little tidbit and like, especially because there are people that are like so dedicated to, you know, I support, I work for Pepsi. I'm going to support Pepsi. I'm going to yeah. only drink Pepsi products. <laughs> um, I don't know if that really, I'm trying to think if I have an instance like that. Personally, like Coke products better. I feel like I shouldn't say that right now, but. <laughs> I mean, same. We've talked about this <laughs> often and I'm sure when my dad listens, he'll text me and be like, Pepsi's better because he did it last time we talked about it, but. <laughs> shucks it is really cute though I really like that you know that's that's dedicated that you um appreciate your job and appreciate your product it's one thing to work somewhere and be like yeah I work at Pepsi but I drink coke when I go home but it's another thing to be dedicated to the Pepsi yeah he was just like very proud of what he did and really where he came from he came from you know a pretty poor family in Mississippi came and worked his way up to Boston married this woman and they were very dedicated in their church and that's how they kind of lived their lives like proud but humble people and they worked hard and they tried to instill good values in their family growing up craig was really accident prone <laughs> um and i was kind of getting like the vibe at first like okay this could lead us somewhere right you know there was one instance when he was like three and he snuck out of the home somehow and had some incident where he got hit or hurt by a car and hurt his legs, which caught, they thought would cause permanent damage, but did not. And at the age of seven, he got hit in the head by a rock 
and had to have stitches. And I'm like, okay, maybe we're getting somewhere. But, like, that was really the extent of it. And even though they're a bit extreme, I will say it was nothing that really stood out as, like, abnormal or extremely traumatic for an active child. Um, I mean, I've had stitches multiple times. We've, Same. I mean, I've been fortunate that I didn't break many bones, but like, I know my boyfriend grew up in the hospital like once a year with something broken or him and her, him or his brother were there. But even like when I, when we started recording this episode, I was like, wow, I have a huge bruise on my leg. What do I do? Like even little things like that. Like <laughs> it's pretty massive bruise guys. I don't know. She literally, she literally pointed it out before we started recording and said, I don't know where this came from. (laughs) It's, like, huge. But, like, stuff like that, especially as, like, a kid, like, you jump off the table and you hit your leg and you have a huge bruise. Like, maybe you don't break anything, but, like, kids are clumsy. Well, and, like I mentioned, the nature versus nurture thing is, like, a big, a big thing for me, right? So, a lot of times when you hear characters, like various stories of like killers or serial killers or you know super sadistic people and you're listening to these cases you know and I will be I'll hear there are certain things I look for right like abuse or abandonment of parents um that usually goes hand in hand with like their future mental health issues and then I'm always looking for like a traumatic brain injury so I'll tell everyone this in case you didn't know just sidetrack Richard Ramirez, by the age of, like, six or seven, had, like, two massive traumatic brain injuries. And, like, to me, I'm like, okay, that's a big sign that that can be something that triggers what shapes you and, like, your lack of empathy or things like that. But I literally dug so deep in his family and, like, his history, and I couldn't find anything. Like, there's no like psychological or physical abuse his siblings came out completely normal it is really if you're looking at this like as a case study I think this is like a perfect example of a nature versus nurture case I used to kind of think like maybe Ted Bundy (laughs) but then like the more obviously they do on Ted Bundy you find out more about like his family kind of being a little messed up but this this was a child and he came from nothing but like a loving and supportive household. He even played both football and baseball, both of which he was good at. He played the guitar and loved music in school. Craig was smart. Teacher said he often did not apply himself and he actually started skipping school a lot, which would cause him to have to repeat the seventh grade. Later, when he was convicted and sent to the training school, he would be tested, and it was apparent he tested above average in quite a few categories. Craig was also surrounded by friends often. He was never a loner. He was joking around, helping those in the neighborhood, cutting grass or shoveling when needed. So, I mean, like I said, by all accounts, a very normal, very well-adjusted childhood. Eventually, Craig started smoking cigarettes and smoking weed. I feel like that's very common as well. (laughs) Um, Even tripping on acid. He started attending parties. And then there was a little bit of, like, a progression. He did start committing, like, petty theft and was progressively arguing with his parents more and more and becoming a little more hostile at home. One time, Craig came home tripping on acid, and his mom forced him into the car. She drove him to his grandmother's home, and there he sat with his mom, his aunt, and his grandma while they continued to read and shout scripture at him in the hopes to save him and his soul. And at the end, when he had sobered up and he had calmed down and they were all sitting there that like praying together and they were firmly believing that they had saved him from his addictions which like obviously I know is a little extreme yes <laughs> um 
but I also think it could have gone very different, you know? I mean, in some of these cases, you hear, like, like I mentioned, he could have came home high and his parents could have beat him. That's or, true. Or, like, true. I don't even think this is, like, a level of, like, religious extremism that I have heard. <laughs> um, I think this is, like, we're going to pray over you. Listen, I'll give you a little tidbit of my information here. Uh, one time, I was, like, 18 and I was living at my grandparents house at the time who are extremely religious people and I got caught at like two in the morning sneaking in uh I had a case of beer in my hands (laughs) and I had two guys behind me uh two of my friends and then another guy so not only was I sneaking in boys in their home uh, at 18, I was also sneaking in alcohol. Um, it's actually to this day, like, one of the only times my grandfather has yelled at me. So, like, I knew I messed up <laughs> because he did not yell. <laughs> and looking back, obviously, I know I'm an idiot, guys. We all know it. But, like, the next morning when everything had settled down and my grandparents had sat me down to talk to me, I mean, part of it was, like, them praying over me and making me pray with them, which, like, I'm not a very religious person, but I felt like that was very normal and, like, on par for who they were. So, I didn't take it any way that, like, his parents were, like, extreme religious, extremely, like, religious and, like, detrimentally religious people um I just thought it was probably like a really bad acid trip and it could have gone a lot worse (laughs) that's true this is very true (laughs) I'm just thinking about Yaya saying that we should pray about where we want to go eat and it's always Olive Garden (laughs) or Outback or Outback I feel like it was always Olive Garden (laughs) she did love herself some Olive Garden so (laughs) (laughs) Eventually, Craig would be caught on a petty theft charge, and he would go to court and be put on a probation as a young kid. But the, only from there did he continue to escalate it. Not long after was when he would be arrested for the Heaton murders as well. The Price family was extremely close. His mother was visiting frequently for years. She would be there at least once a week while he was behind bars. Mr. Price would not visit as often, but he would still come a few years, a few times a year to see his son as well, which I also think is like a big deal because a lot of people would be like, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. (laughs) Over the years in prison, Craig did not do well. In fact, He has consistently gotten into trouble that has consequently extended his sentence multiple times. Now, before I dive into this, there's a little tidbit of information that I didn't like go in depth on, but I thought was important to like include. Uh, Craig Price does claim, you know, he knows that it was really unfair, his sentence of five years, but in the eyes of the law, he served his time and he paid his debt. And he knows, like, no matter what he does, it'll never be good enough for that. Like, he's literally said this in interviews. But in his eyes, he has served his time and he feels extremely discriminated against and feels that because everyone was in an uproar of him only getting five years that the system has continuously targeted him and made him suffer even longer. And we'll kind of get into it. But like I said, you know, even Bill Clinton had mentioned it about six months before Craig Price was set to be released. His In his area, Bill Clinton had come to visit, you know, Rhode Island and when landed and went, you know, to speak with the public, there were protests and people holding signs about Craig Price. Like, they did not want him released. There were comments from the governor and, like, requests to the governor to try and extend his sentence. Like, I mean, this was, like, a huge national campaign as well as a state campaign. So, 
to be fair, <laughs> Craig Price, I think in some aspects, is correct that people did not want him out. Um, I don't I, think Craig Price has helped himself, though. <laughs> I think that that could be something... I guess I can definitely see it from his angle, but I think that that's something that kind of happens anytime that like the law is changed too. Like if your case is the one that changed the law and it's like in, let's say like a negative way. So like his case is the case that changed the law for like the minors and the, their criminal activity. Um, right. That they kind of like look at it like, while well, you're calling me out. Like, but you're the one that committed the crime that you did. Like you're the one that made it this way. But like, just the sense that it they're doesn't looking apply at it. to you. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know. I guess I'm not really surprised by that because I can't think of the case, but I've definitely heard of this happening in another case where, like, the law had changed and the person's in prison and they're like, wow, you guys are just picking on me basically. But it's like, you're the one that made it this right. way. Like, if you wouldn't have come into the crime, you wouldn't have to do the time, my friend. <laughs> That's a good line. yeah I mean I 100% agree I also will say like I said I don't think Craig Price has helped himself while he is behind bars he has had a very tough time adjusting a news report uncovered from Price's records that he has been involved in 41 infractions while serving behind bars and he really like I said just didn't do well we'll kind of be getting into some of those and the timelines of those events uh starting with October of 1993 after four years of being imprisoned Price was charged with extortion and blackmail he had been screaming threats at an officer in the training school he was serving time in And this did lead to an extension of his prison sentence. He was not officially sentenced for the incident until December of 94. I saw somewhere it was between like a a month to four months before his release. And he was set to be released. However, he received a 15-year sentence for this. With only seven to serve and eight years of the sentence suspended. In May of 1998, Price then assaulted a correction officer in the prison library, brutally beating him. I saw a picture of, like, after the attack on the prison guard's face, and it was a very brutal attack. In February of 99, he pled no contest to that assault charge he was facing and received an additional eight-year sentence. With only one to serve and seven years suspended. So, on some aspects, I get what Craig Price is saying. But also, when you assaulted a correction officer and put him in the hospital, and you are only sentenced to serve one year of your eight-year sentence out of that, you're really not tacking on that much time for you, in my opinion, for what you deserve. No, he's making it out like a bandit. Oh, just wait. (laughs) In October of 2001, he assaulted another person, this time an inmate, where he stabbed them using a pen. In March of 2002, he is sentenced for that assault, where he received another seven-year sentence, and yet again, only one to serve, six of that was suspended. He was considered a security risk after years of being in a Rhode Island maximum security prison. And in October of 2004, he was transferred to a higher level security prison in Florida. So they eventually shipped him off. In July of 2009, while in this Florida prison, there was a fro... I can't talk. There was... A fight that broke out with another inmate. During this fight, Price stabbed a correctional officer in the hand with a homemade weapon. Because of this stabbing, he's charged with four separate counts, including battery on a law enforcement officer. 
In April of 2010, he sentenced to two and a half years for that stabbing. Yet again, December of 2014, Craig Price is accused of assault for spitting on a correctional officer, and he was reprimanded for those charges. Um, Rhode Island did this thing <laughs> where they gave you, like, basically good time behavior earned. So for every month you were well-behaved, you could earn 10 days off your sentence. And... <laughs> Craig Price would constantly earn so many, like, at one point he had almost four years of good behavior because it had accumulated so much in between these attacks, and then he would do something else. And then they might reduce some of his good behavior, but they would never strip him of all of it. So basically so, he's, like, got his get-out-of-jail-free card that he's, like, holding. So, like, he'd be charged with something. Sure. But to accumulate all the time. Yeah. And he'd be charged, you know, eight years, seven suspended. He only has to do a year. And in that year, he might get another year or two sentence. But he's already earning so much time. So, he was... He was earning a lot of his free time back. Sure. By March of 2015... Technically, Craig Price was free from the Rhode Island sentence. Uh, however, while he was serving in his time in that Florida prison where he had stabbed the correction officer, he had received two and a half years. And that was through Florida. So they were holding him on that and to continue his sentence. However... <laughs> Rhode Island, because technically he was a free man on probation, he was charged with two probation violations. Uh, he, the assaults and the things that took place in the Florida prison were those violations. <laughs> so I thought that was really interesting. I didn't even realize that's a thing that can happen. But this is going to come back in a little bit. So we'll get there. But <laughs> so. In 2017, obviously long after Craig was transferred to the Florida prison, he was put into what is called a close custody where he is separated from other inmates. Prison officials determined that he has, and I quote, the inability to live with the general population. Unfortunately, this was after Price was accused of stabbing another inmate during a brawl in April of 2017. In January 2019, there was like a lengthy battle in court between that 2017 stabbing and then what I'm about to talk about. Uh, Craig had an attorney who was trying to get him psychological evaluations and hopes that that could help his sentencing that he was facing. But in January of 2019, he finally pled guilty to an attempted murder charge for that 2017 stabbing. Uh, it was a plea deal that they worked out. So at the age of 45, he was sentenced to 25 years for this charge. He lost all of his good time earned behavior. And since Florida does not have parole, Price will only be eligible for release if he serves at least 85% of his total remaining sentence, which is roughly 21 years. If he is released early, this will put him at 66 years old, at which time the state of Rhode Island will be looking to pick him up on those probation violation charges and make him serve out the remaining of his sentences there. So pretty wild, in my opinion. I could definitely see, you know, his point of view of saying, like, they are trying to keep him there, especially with, like, Rhode Island coming after him for that probation violation and stuff. I don't think that's something you see often. But I, like I said, I don't think he helped himself while he was in prison. <laughs> Definitely not. And that's just also, like, that's somebody you probably don't want on the streets, which is possibly why, like, why they're going to go after, you know, the pro 
probation violation, like, yeah, I don't know if I want him back out there. Well, I think that's, like, the biggest thing that stood out to me. Like, yes, obviously, our prison system is supposed to ideally (laughs) rehabilitate and re-release into society. Now, I don't know if at 15 or in 16 when he was sentenced, if he would have been considered, and I'm putting this in air quotes, a lost cause. I don't know. Some of the psychologists have questioned whether he was savable and redeemable, but he was never given the chance to re-enter society, so I don't think we can ever really say that. He has spent almost his entire life in prison. Uh, I do think I would agree with the prison officials that it's been very clear he cannot live with the general population. And so that would worry me as an individual, like, okay, well, if he can't even live in a in a prison without stabbing someone and there's literally guards everywhere, what would he do in the the real world? He wouldn't last very long. Like, before people basically, like, out in the real world in the real world before people are looking for him like before he's committed another case or wanted back I think I would have to agree I have a couple fun facts but is there anything you wanted to add that I might have missed I do have a couple things Hold on, let me go back. So he, Craig Price is said to be Rhode Island's most notorious criminal, which I thought was pretty interesting because this was someone that I don't think I had ever heard of until you had brought it up. Um, okay, so that's actually how I found it. I was like reading an article of um, like the most notorious or most famous cases in each okay. of the 50 states. Oh. And this was Rhode Island. So that's how I found it. And I added it to my list because I was like, oh, I've never heard of this before. I like that. That's a good uh, Google search. Fun fact, Michigan is Jimmy Hoffa. (laughs) I love it. But definitely a case I'd never heard of. And, like, I mean, there's only 50 states, so you would assume that we would know of all of them, of all the notorious 50. But I guess not. I guess I don't know everything. Um, So I know you had mentioned this, but I guess this is something that I have, like, in bold in my notes that was very important and unique I think about all of Price's victims obviously that they were all his neighbors but also that they were stabbed with their own kitchen knives and the fact that they were all stabbed so deeply that the knives eventually would break like break off into their body which is definitely like a crime of passion you know if you're stabbing someone that hard like I guess obviously a kitchen knife is not supposed to be used to stab people so it's not made to stand up that but you got to be really serious about the crime yeah and very passionate about what you're doing for that amount of force amount of force to break off into someone's body I 100% agree and it was really like an opportunity like you said he just all the knives were found at the homes wherever he went so he didn't buy his own block of knives. He didn't bring in a block of knives or a pocket knife from his parents' house, get anything. It was already there, so he just used what was already in the, the victim's homes. Um, I had also read, or there was kind of like a comparison between, you know, everything had happened sim- similarly with all of his victims. But one thing that was his first victim, Rebecca Spencer had also been reportedly stalked a little bit before her murder. And then the change of his last victim being Melissa Heaton, the eight-year-old, having her skull crushed with this kitchen stool. So just, like, how aggressive the killings... I mean, I think they were all very aggressive. We're getting them. Yeah, it just changed over time and had gotten so much more harsh and brutal. And and how emboldened he must have felt breaking into a home, knowing that there were multiple people in that home. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, like, feeling confident enough that he could, if something were to go wrong, because, you know, originally he said he broke in to, like, burglarize the home or something like that, that something, if were to go wrong, he could handle all three victims, which, and he did. So, I can only imagine how... um, 
terrifying and scary he could have been as a grown adult, considering the fact he was 15 and acting so confidently. Yes, and, like, at 15, I think what you said, he was, like, 5'10", and I think now he's, like, 6'4", or something. Like, he's even bigger now than he was then, so... Yeah, like, 6'4", 300 pounds. I mean, he looks like a pro football player. He Mm -hmm. only spends his time working out, any free time he has working out. They said he does, like, thousands of push-ups a day. For why? Like, (laughs) And he, one journalist said that they would visit him when, before he was transferred to uh, to Florida. And he would, when he was in, like, a confined cell, like, 23 hours a day kind of thing, he would jog in place and count his steps to make sure he hit, like, 5,300 steps jogging in place. Because that's the equivalent of running a mile. That's insane. I mean, I guess, yeah. you know being in prison you gotta do what you gotta do to get by but that is insane yeah (laughs) that's really all I had though I do like um I like a good and I mean I (laughs) don't take this the wrong way I like a good name for a killer though you know whatever the media puts out there so the Warwick slasher and I know when we first started literally got on the call earlier I was like hashlinging slasher <laughs> because I love a good name and I really like the Warwick's Warwick slasher as a name not the crimes he committed or all of that but I like the good names that media puts out there that stick they're always like almost like I'm trying to think of the good a uh, good word, but they're like comic book resembling. Like yes. they could be like a villain or a hero or something in some sort of comic book. I mean like the Night Stalker mm-hmm. or the Zodiac. I can't remember if the Zodiac named himself. I think he did. But, like BTK named himself and that's a sucky BTK. name. Yeah. <laughs> no, they always are though. Like they're very comic book or superhero yeah. like just like how you said like they're always just larger than they're life. almost like that's cool like that's a cool name yeah and it's not, not a cool supposed book. to be like that <laughs> like i don't know the shitty person who stabbed people in warwick that's what you should be called greg price that True. sounded very judgy i guess i'm sorry <laughs> got carried away <laughs> <laughs> Um, I do have a couple fun facts, too, that I found. So, obviously, this is a case covered on the ID channel. <laughs> um, It's a show called Killer Kids, season two, episode five. It's, like, one of those where it's, like, two cases in one. I didn't watch it. I don't like those ones. Yeah, I didn't watch it. It's more of, like, a reenactment, a quick summary. Um, But that's the only thing I could find in, like, pop culture reference, like, where this case has been covered, really. That's really interesting because you would think if he was, like, the most notorious for the state of Rhode Rhode Island that it would be something that would be covered more. You know, there's a million things on Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer and BTK and Zodiac Killer and... Here's another reason why I'm so surprised. He was known at the time of his arrest as the youngest serial killer in U.S. history. Uh, I tried to Google and see if, like, anything new or anyone new has been caught. And, like, honestly, most of the cases are more, like, family sides, like, where they take out their families or matricide or patricide where they kill their parents it's not a serial killer so from all things i could find craig price is still the youngest american serial killer i say american because there was one in europe who was like 11 she was crazy what's her name mary or whatever yeah yeah yeah. i know what you're talking about i can picture her face mary bell yes UK and it, she was born in 1957. I feel like it was way longer. She was 11. Yes. Um, and then I did see another one who I think was in India. 
And he was eight, and he killed his six-month-old cousin, his eight-month-old sister, and a six-month-old neighbor. That's interesting. Like, crazy. But Craig Price is the only one I could find in the U.S. There were, like like I said, there's a couple where it was like, I don't think it's classified as a serial killer. Like, there was three victims, but they were all their family, and they killed their family in one night. And they were, like, 12. But you got to think, Craig was 13 when he committed his first crime. And he did it, like, over time. It's not like he did it all, like, like on a killing spree in one night. Yeah, I think it's more of, like, a spree or, like, I, I mean, obviously there's a difference between spree and serial killers. Sure, Um, sure, sure. I think the term serial killer, Craig Price, in my from my understanding, would be the youngest U.S. serial killer. And his initial sentence was only five years. Which is crazy. Yeah, whether you're, and I feel like, I mean, whether you're a minor or not, like, they, I guess they look at, to a certain extent, the, the crime itself, but, like, something like that like this is the he's this young and he's listed as a serial killer or like following in the footsteps of someone as a serial killer not saying it's better to just take out your parents but still kind of (laughs) crazy like a hundred percent crazy and i don't remember what i was about to say (laughs) yeah no it's it's a hundred percent crazy and i can't believe like i had literally never heard of this before no, it's that I, as soon as you sent it to me, I was like, because I, I Googled it when you sent it to me originally, and I was like, <laughs> who is this? And then I, like, looked, I'm like, this is pretty crazy. Like, how did you even figure this out? So I'm happy you told me that, how you found it, too, because Well, shout out to Jacob and my boyfriend and his Ugh. brother, Ben, because they're actually the one that made the decision for me to cover this case. I gave them three options, and I gave them, like, a sentence or two summary of the three options I had. And they both okay. picked this one. <laughs> I like that. So I was super excited. I was like, it's been on my list. It's like six weeks ago or so I found this because I was trying to add and build to my list, you know, so I could pull from it. So hopefully you all enjoyed it and learned something new. Like I said, I've never heard of it before. I listen to a lot of podcasts and like we both watch a lot of true crime shows and I had never heard of it. So that's my favorite thing my favorite piece um so I know like for my cases one of the first things I try to do is like search and see if it's out there on other podcasts and like sometimes they are but sometimes they're not really yeah well and I think we've only done like two cases where I know for sure they've yeah been covered on other podcasts but it might be like one podcast or we did the Ellen Greenberg case, and I had heard it on one podcast, and after we did it, I heard it on, like, three other podcasts, so I was like, oh, we already, I guess that one's getting big, but, I mean, it's getting a lot of attention, so that is very good. I know, like, for everyone else out there, Sid and I have talked about it, too. We like covering the cases where not everyone might have heard, especially if they are unsolved. Like, we definitely want mm-hmm. those stories to get out there, but... I think it's always interesting learning something new and hearing something you might not have heard before. It's true. That's very true. There's All no right, rhyme. Well, Sorry. No, you're good. I was just going to say, like, there's no rhyme or reason, like, why cases go viral. So. There really isn't. interesting to see how many other cases had happened around the same time as others. And then they weren't as big for no reason. Well, so we're actually... If- this is coming out Taco Tuesday. Obviously, we're recording Saturday. So I posted on our story on Instagram. I'm going to post, make a post for it, too, on social media later on. But, like, a True Crime Saturday update. And one of the cases I mentioned is a case from 2013, Kendrick Johnson. And like, an update on that case. That case went massively viral, and it's been covered by a lot of major podcasts. It's forced, like, people to look into it. But then, meanwhile... I have barely heard anyone talk about Robert Durst. I mean, he is dead now. He died three weeks ago. But his trial mm-hmm. that was just going on, I've only heard, like, one person on a podcast, like, briefly mention it. 
Interesting. And, like, I was like, this man is literally a serial killer. <laughs> and he's <True>. rich. <laughs> so, it's wild. So, like, I posted updates on those ones. But that's the same thing. Like, I can't believe. It's just really crazy how it happens. And, you know, Robert Durst being, like, a wealthy white male who committed three potential murders in three different states over decades and gotten away with a lot of them. And uh, I heard barely anyone even, like, talk about it. And then Kendrick Johnson was, you know, a teenage boy, teenage African-American boy in a school. And that was, like, another almost like Ellen Greenberg case where suspected homicide versus, you know, accidental death kind of thing. So it's really interesting how it happens. I have no idea. It's very that weird. Sorry. I'm done. <laughs> uh, well, I'm done, done with the case. <laughs> I've uh, done, done. I did, I put way too many hours reading into way too much information. I didn't even put half of like the random things I read in here about. <laughs> just random stuff his like trials with all these sentence like his jail sentence extensions and all that so gotta wipe my hands clean of this now (laughs) it was a lot so I guess hit me with some jokes and facts to to take us all out of this heavy one what do you want to hear first Okay, so you teased me the other day or yesterday. I like and told the jokes too, though. Okay, so we're going to end on the joke, though. I'm like, just so everyone knows, Sydney told me this joke or this fact is a real good one. I personally thought this was really great. So I found an article, and the title of the article is called 10 Tacos That Are Crimes Against Humanity. And it lists out 10 tacos that are just a little bit absurd that exist in real life. And I was offended reading some of them. Oh, my God. (laughs) So, number one is a spaghetti taco. Oh! (laughs) Yeah, right? Uh, They just, just keep this in mind, they just get worse. Uh, Grape taco being number two. What's a grape taco? Literally a taco with fucking grapes in it. (laughs) Oh, no, 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 no. Okay. Three. This one we know, so I wasn't as offended by this one. I didn't even... I was surprised this one made the list compared to the others. Uh, Doritos Locos Taco. Oh, that is surprising. Yeah, didn't really fit. Um, A hot dog taco. A waffle taco. Waffle taco, I wasn't as offended by because it's kind of like a breakfast taco. Just like a waffle folded over. Oh, that actually oh. might be kind of good. But like, for like a hot dog taco, am I talking like taco meat? The picture and then was like a literally, hot dog? The picture was literally like a hot dog was in the middle and like a taco. Okay. Like in a tortilla. Okay. Um, because like, and the reason I ask is because like my... My boyfriend will <laughs> eat like peanut butter and jelly and put it in like a tortilla. So it's like a peanut so, butter and jelly taco, but it's technically not. Basically, what most of these are. So, like, that would be a peanut butter and jelly taco. It's just like the item in a fucking like roll <laughs> or like okay. in a tortilla. I was like, what the hell? Okay, well, I'm still definitely against spaghetti and this hot dog and grapes. Those are weird. But okay. Okay. A fruit taco being next, which is similar to the grape taco, just fucking yeah, fruits and no. tortilla shell. Weird. Um, <laughs> a mac and cheese steak taco. I mean, I don't like cheese steak. That's weird. My personal favorite, uh, chicken bacon ranch ramen taco. <laughs> What? That's so specific. Pasta bacon taco. Oh my gosh. And a pizza taco. I might eat a pizza taco. So, 
just uh, something that popped out and people's imaginations are running have, wild out there with their taco creations. I have one to add that I have witnessed with my own eyes. God. Are you ready for this? Yes. So, our first annual 4th of July trip, so not the one you came to, the one before. God. We had a person who was not invited back. Who was highly intoxicated the whole trip, like embarrassingly. Like, we're all drinking, like obviously, but it was like, man, you got to sober up. Wake up, showering, drinking beer, fall asleep, drunk, and didn't remember what would happen the night, like that night kind of thing. We literally, midday, or like, no, dinner time, like we all had, you know, been out drinking and tubing and everyone came back you know napping and showering and relaxing and then we all started dinner so before we like that was like our last like full night there we're gonna like light off fireworks and everything we look over and see this man squeezing a freaking jello shot into his taco A red jello shot and a blue one. And then Ew. we watched him eat it. <laughs> it is Why? scarred for life. So all of you need to be scarred too. That is the number one most disgusting jello taco or jello shot taco. Jello. And last but not least, the jello shot taco. <laughs> I'm gonna go back and comment another one. <laughs> jello shot taco. I gotta ask, I'm gonna ask the group if they have uh pictures from it because I really want to know if someone took a picture of him eating it because we were all like what is wrong with you what the hell it was so disgusting (laughs) that's good I love it okay hit me with a joke what do you call a childish childish churl what Immaturo. <laughs> I hate you so much. <laughs> I can't even make these up. They're so good. <laughs> I just had to pause because I was coughing from laughing. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, I think that was a good note to end on. So, folks, you can find us on Facebook at Tacos and Tequila Podcast. On Instagram, which is Tacos and Tequila. You can also go to our website, tacosandtequilapodcast.com. has links to our merch and every episode. It has our sources and all of that good stuff. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you should leave a rating or a review on what you like about the podcast. It would mean a lot to us. And helps us get noticed, so it is greatly appreciated. That too. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's really it. I think that's all we got for you. Awesome. Well, I guess stay tuned and we will... Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.